we still have a warehouse for records. We still have a flat file. We still have physical files. We still have shipments coming in. We still have all these things. Um, you know, speaking as the person who's been in the warehouse, uh, shipping room, you know, tape vault for the last year and a half and change. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's a bummer to not have people around mucking it up, chopping it up, getting, you know, throwing ideas around. We can have all the zoom meetings. We can have all the calls we want, but there's actually a lot of work that still just needs to be done. That has nothing to do with sitting at home with your, with your laptop on the couch. So it's, it's a, it's a big part of it. Does it, do we need to be, I mean, it, it is interesting because, you know, I mean, I've, I've been listening to a lot of, you know, entrepreneurial podcasts in the, during the pandemic, I, I kind of went through a big phase of that. Like I ran through all the big ones, like how we built this and uh, masters of scale. And one thing a lot of founders talk about is like work is not necessarily the best place to do work. Now, it is an, it is essential to have a headquarters and to have people going into it regularly. The, the pace of that and the rhythm of that is variable, but some days we need to be in every day. Sorry, sorry, some weeks we need to be in every day. Some weeks we could probably come in two, three times a week and it would be fine. We could, you know, because sometimes it's best to do some of that work not not at an office, not to tire yourself out from a commute and then have to sit there and write liner notes. You know, sometimes there are advantages to, to working from home, but it's just, we're the type of record label that is very hands-on. So we can't, we can't do that. You know, taking a few months off of being together, that was, that was devastating. Music licensing is a big part of what the company does. Is, is that important proximity for you to have to be in obviously an industry town yeah we'd already had a person in la working doing licensing you know i, th I think that it's it's definitely important to have boots on the ground out here and between numero and secretly we have a, a pretty good footprint in los angeles for for sync licensing I, we knew that we wanted to we wanted to expand already anyways and we'd already had like we had an anr person out here and we had our sync licensing person out here so this is just it's just an, another way to, you know, uh, establish ourselves as a, you know, a, a reissue brand of, of rep, re, you know, with a reputation. Um, we we want to be the best. In the seventies, the entire music business moved to LA. Pretty much. I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement. That you, there's a real trend. I mean, and it was like Mercury Records, Motown. I mean, bit you know, the big Midwestern labels moved to LA and this is sort of kind of recreating that trend a little bit. I mean, the same thing happened over the last 10 years. It might be, I yeah, somewhere between a micro and, and a mini scale. It's just, it's not, it's, um, it's real. You know, we saw a real movement and whether it was even like a Saddle Creek moving to LA or like, you know, Numero, there's a number of examples of it. Uh, one of the main guys at Drag City moved to LA I and mean, there's, there, there's a real, trend and it might just be the case the record labels are smaller and all the big record labels are already there so they, they don't need to move again they don't they barely have a footprint in the midwest at this point one of the questions that i put to artists a lot outside of new york la or nashville is the question of you know whether there is a marked benefit in 2020 2021 when it comes to actually like moving to one of these larger cities in terms of exposure or whether it's better to start out in a 
smaller market. Do you feel that having launched in Chicago was a benefit for the company's early growth? Yeah, I don't think we could have. I don't think we could have done it anywhere else in a lot of ways because it was the perfect proximity to a, a a number of things like the distribution hub. You know, I, I, there was so much of the early music that we got into was from right in that area. You know, we we were just so boots on the ground, and it was affordable too. Like you know, our first office was five hundred dollars. When we started, there was what six Ken. There's what six indie distributors in Chicago. Yeah, it was insane. You know, if you think of Choke, Crosstalk, Groove, Carrot Top, CID, which was Southern. There was a lot. There was actually a lot happening here, and so we had we had good company. Chicago Soul specifically was a big part of a lot of the early releases you were doing. Which came first, the interest specifically in that music of that region, or the decision to? start a record label well i mean for me the record label existed first you know and rob brought the interest in the music i mean so it's like the 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 two things collided together at the right time you know it's like rob had had this incredible idea for uh gathering regional midwestern singles into a box set and i thought that that was a great idea except for that we should just go and look at the actual labels and and go deeper and, and try to focus more on surveys of interesting you know, business anomalies rather than just trying to pluck it, you know, one single out to express an entire, you know, an entire history of a label. Um, and so, you know, I, I was, I've been fascinated with record labels for, for years. And I started my first one when I was 18 and you know, I've basically only run record labels for my entire adult life. So, you know, like when, when Numero came along, it was, pretty natural for me to see in some of the people that we were wanting to work with, like Bill Moss from Capsule or Errol Brown um, from the Bandit label, you know, that their entrepreneurial spirit was very similar to mine. And, you know, thankfully Rob just had this incredible knowledge of, of singles and, and all the, you know, that like where they all were and how to find them. And he had all the, the tactics down. So, you know, we, we, we had a pretty instant rapport in terms of being able to go out and, and find rights. What does business anomalies mean in this context? You know, just like a, a record company that only has 10 or 12 records, is that's like a couple of years of your life, you know? That's like a thing that you, you maybe did for a short amount of time. If you, if you think about a record label only lasting three or four or five years, that's such a short amount of time for a life. And by the time you, you maybe talk to somebody and then they're late 60s or early 70s, might have been an entire like multiple lifetimes ago divorces ago you know people die the, things move on and that's just a little thing it's a little part of their, their lives that they did so you know it, it, they are these little anomalies you know it's like a moment of intense creativity that just poured out in it with a with a business slice of lime on top of it, it was they're just they're so they're so fascinating you know they're, they're like little, little hobbies that just turned into worlds and there's all this art attached. Though. The label really started, I mean, as digital distribution is really taking off, you know, it's, it's kind of the earlier stages of streaming services. Was there a sense in those days that services like Spotify or the Internet generally were just going to make this stuff more easily discoverable anyway? Because, I mean, that's a huge part of, of the role of the company, right, is serving as a as a curator and getting it in front of people. And obviously, we've had all these conversations around sort of like the great like democratization or accessibility around the internet. Um, did you feel that you were almost kind of competing against that? We started off as a as a internet 
only record label. I mean, we were just we were trying to self distribute on the internet for the first. I don't know what it was. A, it was a long seven to nine months where you know we there was this company called Rhino Handmade, um, which was an offshoot of Rhino. It was just a little imprint that they did where they would make these really high end records and sell them on the internet only. And they did this Stooges Funhouse box set that became kind of legendary amongst the reissue world of its time. Um, and I just saw what they were doing and I thought it was so interesting because they were able to take this really deep and kind of esoteric parts of, of the Warner music catalog and go into them in, in depth and they were numbering them and they looked gorgeous and they had foil and all these, you know, they, they just, they just felt like really nice CDs and they were charging 25 bucks a piece for them. And it's like, God, that's a, that's a really interesting marketplace, you know, like to, to be able to go out and replicate that was, uh, an, you know, an early, you know, like that, that was the idea. But I think that, you know, to more of your point about Spotify and the digital marketplace that emerged with the iTunes store, you know, we were pretty resistant to it at first. I would say we, we were up on iTunes. Um, mostly our resistance was just that it was the pain in the ass to do the accounting. You know, it's just like being asked to, to sort of translate these giant reports and turn them into realistic information for our clients. And we always prided ourselves as being a, a, a company that paid royalties on time and accurately. And we had such a struggle with figuring out how to make this turn, you know, to, to have this real accurate reporting. And, and really we, we couldn't have done it until we merged with the secretly family in 2013. Cause we just, we just didn't have the muscle. Uh, to even really handle it. But then once we had that muscle, I think that it's been an amazing tool. And I mean, it's it's kind of where we're going next. So there wasn't like a philosophical hill that anyone wanted to die on in terms of the importance of physical versus digital media? We weren't, cra- I mean, we, we created very beautiful physical products. So we want people to enjoy them. We don't want people to s- stream the songs and be completely disconnected from what you know us and our and, and what we're trying to do i i just met someone the other day who said that duster was his, i mean literally last week who said duster was his favorite band never heard a numero he streams duster constantly did not know what the label was and that's okay we can live with that but that means they're missing out a huge piece of that project and in, in a really beautiful package how does the label counteract that how do you continue to associate yourselves with the artists that you're distributing when Again, you know, if something pops up in your Spotify discovery, you're just kind of flying blind. Well, I would say that our playlist ecosystem is a big part of it because now, you know, we actually, you know, some people now, some, some people who consider themselves numero fans are actually fans of our playlists. That's also okay. It's not our favorite thing, but it's something that we are embracing. And, and you know, we, we spend a lot of time, effort and energy to make really cool, engaging playlists with real cover art that, you know, actually have some background. And then we produce a periodical that is actually a supplement to our playlisting ecosystem. So we're not, we're not shying away from it. It it may not be, it it may not be like our greatest joy, but it's actually becoming something that's really fun. And and we're doing, I think a good job with, I mean, who else is publishing a zine that talks about their playlists? I would say no other record labels. Do you you know otherwise, Ken? No, I I think it's ridiculous that we do, but What's ridiculous about it? It's just, it's just, it's, it's the kind of ideas that I think come about when you have people with 
who are allowed to have boundless creativity. You know, like we, we don't say no to a lot of ideas because we're, we really think that, that the best way to get this stuff out there is to experiment with it and to push it out there. And so like the idea it, to me, it's just, it's like, sometimes I feel like so lucky that we get to go and like, Oh yeah, let's make a zine that is the liner notes for all the digital content that we've been putting up for the last year. And here's a different way that you can enjoy it. You can put this on your coffee table. You can read about it. You can stream it and maybe, you know, maybe it connects a little deeper with you because you can take that story and tell it to a friend. Maybe it's just a little thing to, to have on the corner of your coffee table. that makes you look cool when people come over. Um, but, but I think that like just being able to do that type of thing is how you, you connect a label back to people. You know, is this like, like that record labels are important that they do a service that there's, uh, you know, that there's a, per, a perspective, you know, like all the best record labels have a per, had a perspective, you know, like when they're, when we're talking about founders, we're talking about, you know, your Barry Gordy's of the world, we're talking about your Alan McGee's from creation, you've got, you've got a perspective. And, you know, the thing that luck, Rob and I are so lucky is that even though we've been doing this for 18 years, we're still the founders. We still have a perspective and we can kind of bring that into the world. And it's like everything that we make is from our brains and from our hearts. Does that perspective or does the relationship to the music change when it's a case that you are not necessarily Barry Gordy from the standpoint that, you know, you're discovering like 12 year old Stevie Wonder for the first time, but you're rediscovering these artists. I, I think that that actually allows us in, in this day and age to have more perspective because I, I don't think labels, I don't think most labels anymore really are able to have perspective. Look, look at, you know, I, I think, I think of early 4AD, I think of Moax, I think of labels that had design sensibility. Well, you, and I, I don't want to disparage this, but the reality is artists have too much power at this point for them to, you know, accept a design scheme. Right to have like a consistent design scheme. I mean, if you look at how those early four AD records, or like the the early Moax, that there was consistent artists behind every behind all the early releases, that just doesn't fly in a world where you have to sign a wide variety of artists. I mean, look at where Warp is now. Look at where four AD is now. These are these these labels do not look like they once did. You know, these these labels you have to sign. You have to be willing to sign like a grizzly bear. And, you know, to your electronic label now, you know, and I love Warp and I love Grizzly Bear, but like rewind to 1995 and that would not have made much sense to me. I guess what I'm saying is we are allowed to because we are, we're, we're picking and choosing from the, the past, right? So we can, we can kind of pick and choose what we want to work with in a way that if we were, if we were struggling as a new label to find new energy, we wouldn't we wouldn't have that um, ability to pick and choose. But you know, certainly the net has been cast wider as you've continued on. I mean, you know, you're not a, a Chicago soul label anymore. You're 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 all over the place. And is that is it hard to? I think that the genre isn't perspective and location isn't perspective. Can you put your finger on the consistency there, or or the I guess the mission statement, or kind of the unifying theme across? the broad range of genre it's just stuff we liked you know like we'd we'd go on these trips and we'd just listen to burned cds or an ipod or a cassette or whatever it was sometimes we'd actually have a turntable going in the car um and just try to figure out the things that we thought were interesting there's there is no great unifying theory other than you know our our tastes and our perspective that you know like we we like everything 
we're, we're interested in everything. And, and there's times when we are both not interested in the same things, but we recognize that they could be interesting to other people. But for the most part, the things that we make are things that we both really like. Um, we think we've got pretty good standards for this. We've had a lot more hits than misses, which, you know, like I, it's like anytime you can bat in the 750 range, you're doing okay. And I think if you look at our catalog number system, you know, what started as a pretty straightforward thing is now turned into a fractal, which, you know, look at, look at, look at the discogs and, and, and see how things have expanded. Look at the 800 line, the 500 line, the 1200 line, the 200 line, you know, I mean, 700 with, line, the 900 line, yeah. the 800 line. Exactly. I mean, it is in a sense, it, it, it probably feels like mania. It makes, there's the, there is an underlying logic to it, but I would say it's more like fractal logic than it is any sort of like linear, you know, it's not a, it, it's a, it's a scatter plot, not a, not a graph that goes like that. What does fractal mean exactly? Just in terms of spreading out in a lot of different directions at once. That's exactly it. Yeah. Spreading out and also kind of rotating in on itself in a way, you know, some of this stuff does get very solipsistic, you know, especially when you look at the number line where we're like making fun of things that we made fun of before in a new way that like, you know, people hit us up and we're like, why is it Russ side story volume 23? I only have, you know, it's like, where are the other 22 volumes? It's like, well, that's a joke we started 10 years ago. It's like, and now like we forget at this point, we've done it so many times. We forgot that like, that's fresh to some people, you know? They're, well, especially if you, in the case of the, the side story records, when you put out three volumes and you've got volume 17 and 23 and 25 and wh whatever it is, you know, you, you've got, you've got people sort of wondering, it's like, well, are there 24, 25 volumes that I can get? And how come I can't find them anywhere? Where is all this missing information? So, you know, there's, we're, we're sort of self-aware enough to know that we're creating some deep inside jokes for the future to, to explore. You know, there's, there's nuggets being left along the way for people to unpack over the course of years. We're having fun with it. Is the joke that you're just kind of screwing with completists? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, I, I, that's not like that's not. Our jokes are more complicated. We're, we're a numbered record company, right? So all of our records are in numerical order, and then if you make a system and a series where the numbers don't make any sense to people, it kind of shreds a little bit what they know, right, and what they expect. You're expecting that all these things were going to come in some kind of order. That they would all be, you know, that it all be understandable, which is why we started an imprint called Numbero because people kept mispronouncing the name of the record company because there was Numbero, Numero Uno, Numero Uno Group. What, Rob, what else? What else we got? I mean, there's just been no, no, Numero Number Number Uno or Numero Uno is the number one. We should we just need to start putting stuff out under Numero Uno because we get that the most. But you know, so to to start a label called Numbero just to sort of mess with the whole ideas, you know, there's a poetry to that. There's an expectation, I think, with just like regular everyday people that if you're going to number something that it's going to be in like sequential order and that you're not going to skip any. But there's a, a level on top of that, which is you're dealing with like some oftentimes very completist and sort of like obsessive people when it comes to, you know, people who are really interested in back catalog. So it's, it seems to be like a, 
an extra layer of potentially driving them a bit nuts in the process. I mean, it'll all work out in the end. We'll get all the records out. All the numbers will fill in. And it's just like, you got to, you know, strap in, wait and see. You know, we got years in front of us. I'm 44. Rob's going to be 43 soon. And, you know, we'll probably do this for another 20 years or so. We'll, we'll get it done. Don't worry. And I feel like part of the the overarching theme of the, the, the label generally is that it's not that it's not completist necessarily. I mean, obviously that the album that we're talking about today is like perhaps pretty close to it, but, but it is, it is curatorial. The goal is not necessarily putting out every single piece of music that this person recorded. We, we can't, we'll take both. Well, no, I think what Ken's saying, it's like, we don't want to get married to that kind of like hard philosophical approach because sometimes it's not the right approach for the moment. Right. So when we put out, like a ship on on vinyl for the f- for the first time, we were we were trying to get something out quick and dirty that we that was you know basically like you know maybe not the nicest sleeve quality, but it did it, w- it had the right look. It it sounded great, and then we you know as time went on and we we just the fanaticism for this music continued to to develop, and it was just I mean I've been told by people who, that they can't turn on a turn on a HBO film without hearing T.L. Barrett or, or a TV show without, you know, it's like closing credits in constantly. And we're, we're realizing, Hey, you know, this is, we need, we really need to kind of tell the whole story here. And we haven't done that yet. You know, it, it earned that antenna. We, we did the reverse. We, we did an amazing double LP edition that we kept in print for 12, 13 years on vinyl. It's beautiful. It's got a great cover. It's got great cover art. It's got great packaging. But we realize there's a whole new generation of YouTube fans of Antenna who don't even, you know, who aren't going to splash out 30 bucks for a double LP. And so we did something different for that group. It was just like, it was like, just like the right, it was the right product for the right moment. And it can go either way. It can go from more completest to less. It can go from less completest to more. You know, but it, we're just we're 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 trying to find those pathways into people's eardrums and record collections, and it's not always a straight it's not a straight path. The T.L. Barrett collection is especially interesting from the standpoint that like there are there are sermons collected in there as well. That it is really, it seems like an attempt to give a much larger picture of this person's life. Well, I think I think one thing that that I've you know as we started to dive into this, we realized that. Pastor Barrett's true talent is communication. You know, I mean, there's something extremely simple about Like a Ship, but it just, it's like, it's like a flawless, it, in and, in and of itself, it's almost a flawless sermon. You know, it's a flawless, very simple piece of pop music that is now, can, now, now it's sampled all over the place. There's a reason why it's in all these movies is because it's a straightforward, simple message, very clearly communicated. And so we were trying to, we were trying to capture these moments of communication because that's kind of what we realized, we recognized in Pastor Barrett was that it was more than just, it's not just that he, he comes in with all this musical talent because he, it's not, it's not in the strictest sense, you know, traditional music talent it's actually more of a talent of, of communication connection with the people and his because he's going out there in front of you know every single week in front of a group of people and has to connect with them right and so it's he works these things out in these sermons he works these things out in in, in these songs and so we we really had to show both 
beyond the sermon aspect of it, you know, I, I do, I do get the sense that like he is somebody who is up there musically with like some of the great soul artists of the era. You know, I, I'm, I'm hearing like some of his, I'm hearing like Stevie Wonder and some of his later stuff. And I mean, I'm hearing like, like Otis Redding, had he gone, had he taken another path could have been a much more a successful mainstream soul artist. I mean, I don't really like to deal in what ifs on that, uh, you know, cause I, I think that so much of music is timing and many records get made that are just poorly timed. You know, whether you don't have the right money, you don't have the right promotional structure, somebody breaks a leg, somebody gets pregnant. You know, there, there's all these kind of variables that happen towards records getting big and, and records not being anything. And so it's, I'm not saying that this is all luck, but, you know, you have to understand that there are thousands and thousands of gospel records being made in Chicago at this point, And T.L. Barrett is just one of them. And there has to be so many things that are going to have to break the right way for his to break out and be the thing, you know, and, and it's that the odds are extremely against, um, you know, like it, it, good music is lost more often than not. What is his relationship to the music, uh, you know, particularly the older music at this point? Well, it's gotten very good as it's sure. Yeah. Sure. Re- recently. I mean, he, when, when we first dealt with him, when we first met him in his, in his basement, he didn't have a single copy of the LP. You know, we had, we gave him a CD at one point. He might've found one in a basement since, but I mean, he didn't, he didn't have it at hand. He didn't have, it was not on his wall on display. It was, he was not doing like a ship as part of his repertoire. When we, a few years later, when we asked, when Ken had the bright idea to uh, have Pastor Bear bring a, small group out to perform like a ship it was amazing it was some one of the greatest live shows i've ever seen he hadn't not done like a ship. he had to teach his choir like a ship so that was 2010 i mean he and, and we'd had the record out for a couple of years it, it, it had had a little bit of success his choir didn't even know it so i mean that that could give you some idea of where he was at he had he had very much moved beyond this stuff it was not part of his repertoire. In the meantime, even before all this stuff is having a second life, in addition to, you know, obviously being an active pastor, he was still continuing to sort of like go out there and perform music. At church, at church. He, I mean, to, right now, I mean, he, he doesn't do concerts. I mean, he's most, if not all of his performances are at church or, or another church, you know, that he might get invited to perform at, for instance, like, uh, they have a gospel music conference in Chicago every year. He's performed at that, or his son's performed at that. And he's done one song. He is, he, he is primarily performed at church his entire life. This is, this is never really performing in a, in a, in a venue has never been part of what he, what he really does. With this instance specifically, and I guess just generally when you're dealing with artists who are still around, but haven't had a relationship with the music that you're releasing in, in decades. Is that a strange conversation to have? I mean, it depends what their relationship is with that. I mean, in some cases, I mean, I mean, I'll, you know, the first time I talked to, to Peter Basaraba from Medusa, he was pretty standoffish. And then fast, you know, it's like, I'd love to see the movie where then they cross cut to him performing live with Medusa, just absolutely like shredding with his like, you know, short hair because he's been a business guy for 40 years. It can turn around very, very quickly. Some people have a pretty damaged relationship with the music because whatever it represents in their life becomes now a part of the presence again. So it, it's it's a, it's it's the widest possible spectrum of possibilities. In the case of Medusa, that was just him being like, this is 
this is behind me. I've moved on from this. I just, I don't want to reopen that wound. I, yeah. I, you know, that's the thing is I think a, a lot of people don't believe that we're for real. They've never heard of us. You know, sometimes they Google us and then they're like, whoa, okay, this is actually a thing. Like the first 10 things that come up are about like Grammy nominations and, you know, successes we've had. And, and then, and then they're like, oh, okay, wait, hold on. Because it sounds to a lot of people like they're being sold something. And there's a long history of music industry scams. Like the blues is probably a good example of just literally people just going around and just completely taking advantage of those artists. Well, there's actual, like there's pyramid scheme. I mean, it's that there's, there's actually ripping off artists. And then there's the, there's another level of that, which is, which is the kind of like, you know, you're sort of like talent show scams where you're basically charging people like, we're going to, we're going to make you a star. Like that's, that's even, that's a crazier. Send, you know, send us $500 and we'll send a hundred records to these radio stations and we'll press, you know, it's, there's these scams go on and on and on because everybody thinks that they can make it. It's the, uh, Rebecca Black, right? The, uh, the self-contained music industry. Fundamentally, that is, that's a great example of what a lot of, a lot of music that was recorded in the, you know, I don't know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I'm sure 90s. I mean, that that model was very, very prevalent. There's a whole record label that actually has some incredible records on it that, that followed that model. With the T.O. Barrett record, how much direct involvement did he want to have in the compiling of the record? Or did he just sort of let you you guys go and do your thing? He let us go do, and do our thing. We've built a lot of trust with him over the years. And I think he understands that we're really good at the things that we're really good at, which is, you know, we want to make you look good. We don't want to put things on here that are going to reflect poorly or that are not going to be a great listening experience for, for the the end user. So, you know, but that that's built over more than a decade of working with him and making really good choices and not overexposing him in the wrong ways. So it's like Rob said, I mean, the, the trust that has been built is is based on us just doing the work and doing the right work at the right time. Is that an anomaly? Or do people generally, at least early on, want to have a really hands-on approach to the record's release? Depends who it is. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, the, you know, and maybe more of the artists that we work with that are more contemporary or from the 90s, they want to have more involvement in things like packaging and the cover art. And, and that's where you bend a little bit, uh, you know, but, but simultaneously, some of them are also just as eager to let you take the wheel because they want to have the pers- they want to have our perspective on the records, not their perspective on the records. You know, like it's a, what we bring is, is a, it's a little bit of a special sauce, you know? So say, Hey, here's the good ideas. Here's the, here's how it's going to come. Here's the package that it's going to come in. Here's how many LPs, here's all the side splits. And when you can deliver something to somebody like that, a lot of times you can get to yes, because they're just impressed that you've done all this work, you know, because you've thought about it. Um, I mean, that, that to me is just like, that's the job of making great records is thinking through all the machinations of like what this could potentially be. I've always strived to, to bring our best ideas to the table when we try to make a record first, even if they're outlandish and then scale back from there, you know, because of budget or, you know, it's not realistic or whatever, because it's like that, that's how you get to greatness. You don't get to greatness by starting off with you know, like the, the crappiest version of something that you can make. How does that outlandishness generally manifest itself? Is it just like packaging? Is it number of records in a given release? You know, if you had a, a magic wand and could go out all out, how outlandish are we talking about with these releases? I mean, we did a Blondie box set that's 10 LPs, a 10 inch, 7 inch, two books, 
one of the books is a discography book. I mean, like we've, we've done insanely deep and expansive multi hundred page books. We've done board games. We've, you know, like there's, I mean, like we have books that come with just tons of little objects that fall out of them. We've done 45 boxes. We've done, you know, like it's just, there's, there's the limitation is only of our imagination, uh, you know, of like what we think we can sell with what, with the material that we have. I, 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 I like that we try to go bold with things. Not all of our ideas have worked out. We've definitely stiffed on records and been like, oh, that didn't go the way we wanted it to go. But again, it's just like, I think our batting average has also been high enough that we're allowed to make some mistakes and you know, not everything's gonna hit. I had Art Spiegelman, the cartoonist on the show a while ago. Part of why he had leaned in so much on book design and book packaging was in order to basically give somebody a reason to buy a physical copy of a book versus just, you know, downloading it on their iPad. Do you get the sense that the rise of digital media distribution has caused you to really want to kind of lean into the physical product? I don't. I mean, we were doing it before digitally distributed widely. We're, we're, we're trying to lean out of that, actually. I mean, you know, like it, you know it's not that we want it. We, we want to make no records. I think that that's a misnomer. But I do think that just ecologically speaking, um, this isn't really responsible. Uh, you know, we don't need to make a bunch of stuff. We need to make the right stuff and it needs to be at the right price. And, you know, right, right now, I think records are probably too cheap given how much energy goes into making them. We spend a lot of energy on records that I know we, we don't really get back. So I think that, you know, the trend for us is eventually going to be making fewer really nice things. You know, just we'll just make a couple of things that are, are absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, we'll, hopefully the world will move to a, a more sustainable consumption model for music that's both good for the artist and for the record company and for the consumer. You know, I, I don't think we're that far away from that happening. Ken had alluded to this a little bit early on in terms of what that means for the future. Obviously, you know, playlists, Rob, as you had said earlier, are, are a big part of that. But as the company moves away from physical media, what does Numero look like in the future? Well, we're already doing it. I mean, we really, I don't know if any if people are following this as much as we're following it because we're on the inside of it. But, you know, we release three records a week digitally. We do either a single, an EP, or an album on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we're actively going out there with music that we're not ready to press. We're not sure if this stuff is ready for prime time. We're demoing it out. We're, you know, we're rough drafting in real time for everybody to see. You can go out and listen to it. And the more you listen to it, the more likely are we're going to make it. And so we're using that data now to, to drive the things that we want to make because it used to be that... Rob and I would just sort of squint at a record, think that we liked it, and then we'd press it, and then some records hit and some records miss. And now we're getting closer and closer to that, you know, like, you know, can we close in on a 950 batting average where almost everything we make just sells out really instantaneously? The digital has driven that information for people. You know, like it's like, like, you know, for us to digest and take in the right direction. It's like, hey, we should press this now. This has got a million streams. That's that's worth us paying attention to you know and I, I think that we'll just continue to let that data drive how we manufacture records and, and the quantities that we're going to manufacture and I don't think we're the only people doing this you know I, the majors are doing this hundred percent you know they, they know the things that they're pressing are going to sell because they got the data and they're looking at it and they're like this is worth bringing to market there's a reason why there's 50,000 Harry Styles records at Target 
you know, they know what they're doing. Liner notes have been a, a really important part of what you do. And, you know, it, it's great that there is a magazine, but it is it is very supplemental, right? It is something that people do have to seek out in addition to listening to the, the music digitally. Is there life for liner notes going forward? Is there a way that they will sort of like live on beyond the physical product? Absolutely. I mean, we're already doing it on our website with we have stories where it's essentially just the liner notes and you can read them on your phone or your iPad or your, your desktop. I mean, eventually it'll move into some kind of reader format and, you know, like it, ideally we'd like to make a book of them at some point in time. It's still really important to our identity to have great copy. I pride myself on delivering great copy for people to read, for us to get a chuckle out of, for, you know, for it to put some context around some of this music that is very hard to understand for people. I know we're not making the most easily, easily digestible you know, music for people and that sometimes just putting words around it does help. So we're not getting away from that. But I do think that there's less of a need to maybe commit all this to paper, as especially as we move more towards an e-reader society. And I think that, you know, this this music, this these all this music then becomes searchable within these liner notes, too, because eventually all this stuff will start getting tagged and connected and you'll be able to you know, read over it and be like, oh, I want to listen to that song. You'll press play right there. And you'll just, you know, you'll have a full experience with this. We're just not there. We're not far enough along. And, you know, like e-reading isn't where people want it to be. But keep in mind, an entire generation of kids are growing up without books. You know, like, and in the, in a different, you know, or they're having different relationships with books. So, you know, we, we have to, we have to go towards them, not the other way around. I think that streaming is a double-edged sword. It's it's great, you know, for younger audiences from the standpoint of there really being no barriers to the kinds of music that they listen to. I mean, you know, certainly like when I was coming up, we we were very wedded to a certain genre of music, and and you know, perhaps wouldn't stray too far from it. But the, the downside is that there isn't there isn't any context. I mean, there isn't, you know, if you're just listening to something through Spotify, you're missing so much of the history. It's such an important aspect of music is where it came from. Well, it, that's that's true for us. I mean, it, there, there must be some other way in which people find context for the music they're listening to. I mean, one thing I think is interesting is that, you know, when you look at the, it, and, and I've never been a fan of this fact, but when you look at the way that Brit- a lot of British soul fans consume music, their, their history of soul music is the history of their dance music culture, not, not as much necessarily the history of the artists that made it or their, or their stories, right? So they, they actually, they have their own spin. So the, the context for a lot of music now is going to be the, the places where someone was in their life when they heard it. Now, how do we connect to that? That's our challenge. I mean, we can't, we can't look at them and say, you're doing it wrong. They'll say, screw you. We're doing what we're doing. Adapt or die. And, and we're not, you know, we don't know that we have the right answer. I don't know that, that for that something like the zine that we do actually doesn't have a future. It hasn't, it doesn't have a present, but it might have a future. Do you foresee a point where physical media it just isn't a part of what you do? I don't know. We'll probably always make something because I think Rob and I are tinkerers like that. And we're always coming up with ideas. And, and, and I mean, look, when I started making records, I started making records because they were just records that I wanted to actually own. And I think Rob and I still very much subscribe to that philosophy. We want to make things that we would want to be able to file and put away on our own shelves. And so, you know, some of the things that we press are just for us, you know, like that we had to make another 498 of them, you know, to satisfy the market, you know, like, and the, and the need to have done it. I mean, that's just the, the, the collateral damage, but I, I love making records that, you know, aren't for everybody and, and maybe just for us. And I think we'll, 
probably continue. Rob, what do you think? It's just going to be t-shirts with QR codes. Just a big QR code right here. We're, we're doing, we're always going to do some physical product. Is it 5% of the business? Is it 3%? Is it 30%? Is it 30%? I mean, that much I'm not able to predict, but it'll be a portion of the business for sure.